Welcome to Talking Sock. Australian puppet builder Chris Ragg is a Melbourne-based Muppet lover who has been perfecting his craft for the past 30 years. When I'm building, nothing really matters apart from the joy that it brings me to actually build something that I love. Hailing from New Zealand, Chris recently commercialised his practice, forming his brand Puppet Tribe. Join Chris and I now as we talk the ins and outs of finding your tribe through puppetry, here on Talking Sock. Hello, Chris. Hey, Pete. It's a real pleasure to be here today. Oh, thanks for being here. So as I always do, I will start with my very first question, which is the same for everyone. Chris, why puppets? I think when I was growing up, I'm a child of the late 70s, early 80s. We all had puppets and probably Muppets in our lives. There were probably was people that always had a Muppet record when they were younger. And I have very vivid memories of getting up on a Sunday morning at 8 o'clock and watching the Muppet show on a very cold New Zealand winter morning. I don't think there was ever a time when puppets in my generation in the 70s and 80s that weren't, I guess, entertained by puppets, famous puppets, I guess the Muppets in particular, that I was drawn to. And I guess that's just really spurred my interest in puppetry. There was always something about it as an art form that really always interests me. And you built your first puppet when you were five years old, I think I remember I was, you saying. Yeah, I was heavily influenced, I guess, by my grandparents. My grandmother made porcelain dolls. My mother was a dressmaker. Her mother was a dressmaker and upholstered furniture and my my father's side was full of engineers so from a creative point of view I was always going to probably be creative in some way a maker at least yeah Um, I guess a maker but also stepping into that that world as a young boy going into a dilapidated old theater where the Muppets resided that was always enthralling for me it was like entering into another entering into another world basically a safe place yeah a special place where you would go on a Sunday morning I see. and watch these amazing performers perform these characters that were very well-rounded and were very human-like so let me paint a picture for my listeners because I walked into your apartment where we are today <laughs> and I was basically met by the Muppets and Sesame Street characters. You have built replicas of nearly all the Muppets, if I'm if, maybe all the Muppets. Uh, am Not I correct? all of them. Not all of them There's yet. no room. There's no room for them all. <laughs> and and nearly every character, main character from Sesame Street. And there's a particular character, a little green character, that you make every four years to sort of self-assess your improvement as a builder. Now you've been building for 30 years. I have to ask you, why Muppets? And why making the replicas? Because it's a very personal thing for you. You don't sell these replicas, do you? Not at all. Mm. They're just for my personal, I guess, in some ways, personal development. I mean, you came into the apartment tonight and saw a Kermit that I made. And I died. Anyway. <laughs> a Kermit that I made maybe four years ago, which I actually thought was was pretty damn good. Yeah. But I've recently uh, made another one and the uh, differences in the building and the techniques and how I guess I've changed doing things as a builder. It's quite extraordinary just to see the differences in the design and mm. how the character looks. I think for me, because it's such a, a love for those characters and I guess a lot of joy that they've brought me and, and a lot of people, it's it's kind of a special 
I guess, relationship that I have with the characters because they've been with me, I guess, all my life. Again, I think it's probably a safe place for me to go. When I'm building, nothing really matters apart from of the joy that it brings me to actually build something that I love. Mm. You started to bring a level of quality into it now and you were just showing me your puppet tribe, Christopher Rag branding elements mm-hmm. that you're going to start really producing and making your puppets for commercial stuff. I want to talk about the, the brand of a puppet builder and how a puppet builder advertises and works themselves. I think... I think a lot of puppet builders could could do more of that, of selling yourself a little bit more. But, you know, the work is incredible. And what I want to know is how have that has that evolved, that, that branding element of your work? Well, the, brand, the branding has really, I guess, come into play for the last couple of years. And that came about because I sort of decided that I'd like to propel myself forward more. I mean, this isn't a full-time job for me. This is a, is a hobby, which mm. I'd like to progress further. But... It's almost like a necessity. I think as puppet builders, we tend to be the people in the back room creating these amazing things for the performers to go out and perform. And shine. And shine, basically. And I think people have to remember that somebody built that thing and there was a lot of consultation that went on between the performer, the builders, and whoever else has commissioned the, the, the character that the builder in some ways, apart from the performer, is probably the most important part of that process because they're actually creating this thing that will go on and essentially will be in their own life sort of thing, will have their own life as a character. Yeah. So we tend to be very mild-mannered and quiet people, I think. Yeah. I think sometimes people that are involved in making, they're very good at making but they're not necessarily good at marketing themselves because... That's just not who they are as people. And I think it's important that the people are listening to this, that they really think about marketing who they are as a person, whether or not it's a brand or who they are, because we really need recognition for the sort of stuff. That yes, we do. you do. We're doing a project at the moment that we'll talk about, no doubt, later, where it's kind of a necessity to get your name out there. I've recently put together a new logo and have started producing labels, which will go into a lot of the characters that, that we're making for projects for other people. But it's really important that sort of stuff is done. And if you if you don't know how to maybe get that up and running, that you really speak to someone or a friend of a friend or someone that someone else knows to actually really help you maybe propel that forward. Yeah, definitely. That's a really good answer. I really appreciate puppet builders and, and I've sort of been learning from one, um, Catherine Hannaford, for the last sort of three years now. There is something to be said about the underappreciation, the undervalue of the builder, and that needs to change. Because I think particularly in the industry now, a quote for a, a, a custom build would be what somewhere between, if, if you were asking Earth, a company like Earth to do a build like this, it would be what, $12,000 for a simple puppet? I actually had a friend who did go to Earth and did ask for a puppet. And they did quote that price. And people that I think don't really recognize as well that puppet building is time. Not on, only that, that these skills have been built up over years. A period, a period of time. And it's not just the, the time. It's Well, it, time has a big part to play in it, of mm. course, because we're making the thing. But, you know, we're talking about fabric and sourcing and experimentation. And, and those things can, can chew up a lot of the time. Mm. Um, and to get a finished product, 
yeah, it's, it's, you know, it, it is what it is. Yeah. So I want to ask about where it all started for you, because I, I know a little bit about you. I know that you're from New Zealand. I know that you went to film school, but you trained in art. Am I right? I was heavily involved in, in high school in, in art and excelled at art, topped the, the grade and everything in three years in a row. So I have always been interested in art, but I was always good at drawing I was always good at, at creating. I did it. I excelled at all of that. And I think a lot of that has to stem back from my influence from my grandparents with the making, the sewing. And that, I guess, progressed onto, on, onto filmmaking and, and television production. I loved, I loved art and I still love it. I just don't get the time to do it as much mm. as what I would love, particularly painting. So when did art film those passions meet puppets. I mean, you, and I, I want to ask you more about your grandmother and, and these porcelain dolls. And mm-hmm. did did she introduce you to puppetry in, in the way? Was the Muppets just there? I sort of remember when I was probably three or four that I, I just have very vivid memories of me watching these characters on television back in the early, early 80s. And at the same time that that was happening, I remember that I was given a couple of, of just commercially made puppets, I mm-hmm. think, which was a Kermit and a Rolf the dog. Um, mm-hmm. And I would run around or, you know, dance around the living room with a Muppet record on, you know, mouthing the words and all that sort of stuff with the characters. So it's I a really great mental image. I, I, distinctly, <laughs> I distinctly remember that. I distinctly remember a lot of my friends had the Muppet record um, that was always in the record in the record player cabinet. I think the thing about it is, for me, is that, Puppetry allows you to use all of your skills. If you're interested in directing, for example, if you're interested in film, if you're interested in television, if you're interested in making, if you're interested in costume and just crafting, puppetry brings all those elements together. So Mm. you can be the director, the producer, you can produce, you can be a builder, you can set design, you can do everything from this one amazing art form. And I think that's kind of special. I guess that's what started my interest into film and television. And, you know, how how are these things being filmed and, and what are the techniques that they use? It kind of was a progression. It's a, it's a similar story that I hear with, with a lot of people that are interested in puppetry is they get started to it because they were influenced either by watching television, by family members who encouraged them to be creative, and then they maybe stumble across the art form and think, oh, I could maybe have a go at that, mm-hmm. and then it really charges their interest to pursue it. I just enjoyed the process. I remember just having felt and fur strewn across our living room and me sitting in the middle stitching away. And I just really, really enjoyed it. I just really wanted to know everything mm. that, that that could be done. And I guess being in New Zealand too, we were kind of limited in terms of what we could get for, for fabric and all of that sort of stuff. You've only been in Australia for how many years now? I'm, I'm actually being my 20th year this year in July. In Australia? Yes. So do you know much about the puppet scene in, in New Zealand and what's, what is there? Or has that kind of become the Australian scene? For you? I think it's more so the Australian scene for yeah. me. I mean, it's a lot smaller there. I know from from just friends that worked in the film and TV industry, there would probably be one or two design companies that would maybe build things for TV production. They would be the go-to people. I think there's a lot of new kind of companies. I think there's um, a, a guy called Woe Studios that's in Auckland that does some amazing builds. I think... 
there has been some, I guess, puppet productions that have been on in, in New Zealand. I think the Mo Show was was one of them. So I think there's definitely been things that have been happening. I mean, I haven't been there. I haven't been exposed to it in the last 20 years, but I know of of shows and I know of companies that have evolved mm. over that time. Yeah. There's a new show that you're, you're that is coming out that is um, kind of been a collaboration of a lot of puppet builders and makers mm-hmm. from both Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. I think it's mostly being heralded by Larrikin Puppets and, and it's called Hijabi Girl and it was crowdfunded and it, it's going to be great. And you're actually making the main characters for this show along with your working partner, Michael Lanza. And I also know that Catherine Hannaford is building for this show as well. So Correct. it has been kind of a, a group effort. Yep. And I want to know, because you designed those characters or at least you had a hand in it, what is the process from start to finish for you and how does it all start? First of all, I, I will put a shout out to Michael. He's Puppet Creation Lab and working collaboratively with him um, on those builds. We were lucky with Larrikin because they had they pretty much prescribed what they wanted. So there wasn't a lot of backwards and forwards on design. They were very clear in terms of what they wanted the look and the style of the puppets to be. We'd put forward a number of suggestions and they pretty much went with those. From the design process, I guess once that's locked off in terms of the look, we then go about sourcing materials for that. They're foam puppets, very similar to anything Muppet style. And So let's get to the nitty gritty here because this is a puppet podcast. So who do you source on? Where, Where does it all come from? Because this is what builders want to know and, and and obviously don't don't give away your trade secrets if you don't want to but you know there are some companies that we can't find in australia sure. or there's some it's particularly products and fabrics so let's get into the nitty-gritty sure. of that so i guess from the base product we're talking about foam and reticulated foam is is commonly used for puppet building there is a place here in melbourne which i can't give you the name because i just don't know the name because uh, michael won't tell him <laughs> and it's really well, cheeky michael i think michael would tell me if I asked him, but I generally just say, Michael, would you like, could you order some foam and he will do it? Go, for me. go, be my, be my minion. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, that's that's the first kind of step. There's always been questions about what, what kind of glue and, and those sort of things that puppet builders want to use. And, you know, they worry about the smell and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, I use a product which is called, I think it's Sicker product, which is available from Bunnings. I took a long time to try and find something that was, I guess strong enough to hold the foam together because it needs to be pretty robust for the build, but also is flexible so you don't get that sort of terrible glue line. Like with the contact adhesive yeah. that you would normally get? So I, I only really ever use contact adhesives yeah. until I started getting two-part sprays yeah. and salt-based activator. So this allows you to have more flexible. And if you ever pick up a Chris's puppets, they're incredibly light. And that's something that as a puppeteer, I just go, oh, thank you. How do you keep that? That level of lightweight, and what do you do with the puppet foam? Is that just reticulated foam, it's or just, is it something it's else? It's just reticulated foam. I think you know, being a builder, I think one of the things is you really need to be mindful of the fact that the the puppet will probably be uh, above the head of the puppet here for quite some time. I mean, in a theatre sense, that may not happen. They might just be you know, performed next to them in kind of an Avenue Q style. Mm-hmm. But I think you need to be always aware of the weight. And I'm always very, very mindful of that because the puppeteer has the character on their arm for probably extended lengths of time. You just have to take that into consideration, particularly in the design process. Mm. And so, but the other thing about your making process that I find really fascinating is that you hand sew everything. You don't use a machine. 
In the in the Larrikin build, we have hand sewn a lot of the characters. The head probably is the only thing that hasn't been machine stitched. I have a real problem with machine stitching because I don't feel as though I have the control to create really beautiful lines and be able to hide seams and all of that then that that hand stitching enables you to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the Larrikin build, we've done that because we know that they will be used in a theatre setting. We know that they will be used, not roughly, but they will be needed quickly and they need to last because we know that it'll be a travelling show. Obviously, we've tried to make the materials in terms of the eyes and noses and things like that with things that are readily available, such as foam balls and and. Th- for the noses and large sort of plastic, I guess, mm-hmm. large ping pong balls for eyes that we can quickly replicate if something happens and, and they need need to be replaced and repaired. Yeah, so it means that you've got the central control space to be able to repair something that comes down. Right. I'm, I'm also interested in, like, you know, I went upstairs to your, your apartment and I saw that you had made this adorable little dinner outfit for or, or jacket for for your little green uh, person and that was hand sewn that was hand stitched so as you said before that you're you're someone who's gotten into everything you got into your directing you got into your building your costuming and i've seen the costumes that you've made tell us about the printing of fabrics that you have done for some of your characters how does that get done where do you do it tell us more because this is this is the good stuff there's a place in Melbourne, which which does do printing of fabric, but there is a company called Spoonflower, which is I think based in this in the United States, and they will print designs uh, for you. There are places that do that. You've just got to explore, and I guess that's the fun of it as well, is that you need to go out and look for these places. Mm. But Spoonflower has been the place where I have had fabric printed and yeah. designed and you can get printers now that do enable you to do that you can print your own labels and you can print fabric there are amazing printers and and machinery that can do that for you the difference between what you've got there is i want to know did you design or redesign burton ernie's clothes did you have to sit down on a graphic design computer and work no, on that pattern and, or did I'm, you and, I'm, not, and, and i'm very um and i'm not that technical uh-huh. Um, I'm I'm very very old school manual. The designs are available online as well, which you can find, and it does give you the option of printing on all different types of fabric. You might want spandex, you might want cotton, you might want a different sort of fabric. So you can pick. That just adds another dimension to being able to get what you want. Don't we love the internet? <laughs> we do indeed. We do indeed. I guess the other thing that I'd like to sort of shout out on is puppet pelts because totally these guys have an amazing, amazing business, amazing array of product, which five years ago we couldn't have dreamed that we would have availability to to Antron and nylon fleece and fur and fabrics and and noses and eyes and, you know, suede fabric for mouths and felt and all sorts of things. It's really a nonstop, one-stop puppet shop. Yeah. It's just such... It's such a joy to be able to have that and go to that. I recently purchased their swatch books and it's just fun to go through it. And particularly if you've got a project that you want to do, and I mean, fur, fur and fabric looks different online than it does in real life. And to be able to yeah. have those sort of swatch swatches of the fabric, which is 
a really great initiative really helps when building. It just gives you an idea of how something's going to look. And so, look, we're talking about Anton Fleece, and, and one of the characters that I went upstairs and saw was was Miss Piggy, who has been recognised by the des- original designer, I believe. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that. I could never have dreamed that that was going to happen. But back in, in 2018, some of you people that listen to the podcast may have heard about the retrospectacle. It was 10 years in the making and then it was held in Wellington um, in New Zealand of all places. I think it was in April of 2018. Basically, it brought together Muppet performers, Sesame Street performers, Fraggle Rock performers, and a lot of people that were associated with with Jim Henson in his career, in particular Arthur Novell, who was his PR manager, and also Bonnie Erickson, who many of your podcast listeners would know, who was the designer of Miss Piggy and Statler and Waldorf, mm-hmm. and, and also some of the band members and those sort of things. So yeah. I, I happened, and I was lucky because I was staying at the hotel where a lot of the performers and, and guests were staying, and I happened to bump into her one. Did you die a little bit? Did you kind of just, like, well, I was a little really bit hesitant. I was kind of a little bit hesitant to say hello, but I thought, gee, I'm probably never going to get this opportunity again, so I probably should just go up and introduce myself and yeah, say hi. <laughs> and sometimes you just have to throw caution to the wind, yes. so that's that's what happened. And met her. She was lovely. Her husband, Wade, is, is a lovely person, and, and I just happened to have my my phone with me as we all do and started scrolling through photos and she was really really impressed and amazed and I had built this Miss Piggy and again you know I don't have experience in flocking and all of that sort of thing but I built my Miss Piggy with a foam base and covered it with with skin colored antron and all of that and she was sculpted really, the nose to like sculpted sculpted the nose absolute and all perfection. that sort of stuff a lot of it was done with sheet foam which is actually really difficult with mm. a character like Miss Piggy because yeah. it's very rounded. She was very impressed and I actually was going into a, a quiz afternoon as part of the retrospectacle, which I actually aced. Um, yeah, you did. And, <laughs> and won and ended up ha- sitting next to Arthur Novell, who was Jim Henson's PR manager oh, for wow. quite some time and, you know, very suave gentleman who, who had rose-coloured aviators on and um, was very Hollywood style. And, um, <laughs> the Stanley for Jim Henson. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much and... Um, was a, just had a really, really lovely chat. And with Bonnie, we agreed to stay in touch and we email quite regularly. And I was in New York last year and happened to uh, have dinner with her and her husband and had a fabulous night. And yeah, it's quite amazing that never in two, year, two years ago, I would have thought that I would have met her. And, um, and I'm really, really grateful that I did. That's really fabulous. You are listening to Talking Sock with One Orange Sock and Chris Rag. We're going to have a little break. We'll be right back after the break with more talking about Chris and his time as a puppet builder. Make sure you follow One Orange Sock Productions on Instagram. We'll be back with Chris shortly. This is Philip Miller. I'm Richard Bradshaw. I'm Sue Wallace. And you are listening to Talking Sock. Talking Sock Podcast. The one Orange Sock production. This is the number one podcast for puppetry in the country. Your one-stop shop for all things puppetry arts and practitioners. The number one puppetry podcast in Australia. Follow this podcast.
Welcome back. You are listening to Talking Sock with Pete Davidson and Chris Rag. We've been talking about your work as a puppet builder, but it's now time to talk more about sort of the industry of puppetry and where you've come from and where you're going. But I, I want to know what the, the, the challenges of puppetry have been for you, Chris, as a puppet builder. You've been doing this now for over 30 years in Australia. How has puppetry, and in New Zealand, how has puppetry and puppet building changed for you? I think the access to the internet has certainly helped me. I've always struggled with patterning soft foam and turning it into three-dimensional shapes. When I was probably first building, I would just cut out a circle and stuff it with some Dacron fill. Oh, I feel very seen right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but that's no longer what I do. Access to the internet, and there's some great courses online through Stan Winston that people should take a look at yep. um, with, BJ, with, with, with BJ Geyer. Those are amazing, those web series. And I would urge anyone who's really interested in, in learning how to build to, to get onto those. Certainly access to the internet. It, I mean, it's a global world now. We have access to pretty much anything we want. And that's, you know, that's a, the world's your oyster as a puppet builder because you can go and search for pretty much anything that you need. You can spend hours doing that sort of thing. So before the internet, how did you find your ways through challenges? And maybe you might still do. Look, I still, I mean, I think as puppet builders, we kind of agonise over where we're going to get eyes and where we're going to find shapes and all of that sort of stuff. And sometimes those sort of things are are looking uh, straight at us, the simplest shapes, and we probably shouldn't agonise as much over where to get things. In saying that, there's a whole world of, of opportunity where you can pick up bits and pieces to create. When I was first starting out in, in building, I would go to a very famous craft shop in Christchurch of, of all places called Hands, which was a massive craft supply store. And they had so much fur and, and felt. And I would probably go there pretty much every week on my school holidays and pick up foam and fleece and all sorts of things. Sure, there's, there's there's challenges, you know, even trying to build a certain shape. I mean, like, let's 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 go back to Miss Piggy. Let's yeah. talk about her nose and that arc that's in the top of her nose to the front. Sure, is that layered pieces of of that? That's pretty. That's pretty much just sheet foam, which is then molded or I guess sculpted, I guess fashioned into a shape and then covered with some antron fleece. It's, but it's that a, shape is so accurate, Chris. This is what I'm getting at. Like, underneath, underneath the underneath the fleece, it's pretty crude. I wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, you don't see everything, um, and there's probably some secrets behind there that I wouldn't show anyone. But it's what we do for our our craft. Yeah, we probably spent hours trying to work out how to do those sort of things where the average person wouldn't even know or care. Maybe what, one thing that I think you have done that is mammoth and had to be challenging was Patches Place. Mm -hmm. Patches Place being a, a TV show that you made for community television. Can you tell us about Patches Place? And, and, and that must have been a massive undertaking. It all came about because my old tutor, who passed away last year, Ron Roger, he was tasked with setting up a, a community access television station, which was run by, at the time, Christchurch Polytech. And it was a space where community groups could come in, produce shows and all of those sort of things. And it was actually a really, really well set up studio. Awesome. A lot of money had been poured into it. And after I'd finished my film, film and television diploma, he knew that I was interested in, in puppetry and so forth and asked me whether or not I would like to do a, a talking heads kind of thing. I naturally probably took it a step further and, and the production 
production came became quite large where we had four main performers, we had seven or eight main characters and there were five sets and it sort of ended up being a little bit bigger than Ben-Hur. But I was determined to try and prove to myself that I could do that sort of thing and I'm really, really big on result and everything that you see on the screen I've created through to the sets the props and the characters. And, and executive produced. Like and executive, executive produced. I was only 21, 22 maybe at the time. It was such a fun experience. I would go into the studio at 7 o'clock in the morning and do setups and everything and then and maybe paint some sets, getting organised for the following day. And I'd come out of the studio at 12 a.m. the following morning and it was just like play for me. It was yeah. like my second home. I just loved it. But, yeah, we did 10 episodes of that and I pretty much finished that and moved to Australia and never really saw it on the community station. And I think it was repeated about three times, so there were 30 weeks when it was on. I mean, I look, I would have liked to have done more with the series and I know that uh, a number of um, people who worked on the show were very, very keen, but, you know, you need money to continue doing these things. I always kind of wonder whether or not I'd stayed in New Zealand what I would have done with it. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a space here in Australia where community television is a thing and it's a funded thing that's something to to, to dream about but I, I i have to ask you know you you were literally everything for that show you're the executive producer you built the puppets you did the mm-hmm. artwork you yeah. found everyone together and i and i want to know what what was the takeaway from that the issue that i had when i left film school and i know that a lot of film students will film feel this way is that they go for jobs and they get asked well what's your experience it's like well i don't have much experience because I've just come out of film school. Yeah. So I was determined that that I would produce something where everything that had been made, I had made, and I could show, well, this is what I've done and this shows my talent mm. uh, and just kind of pushed myself. It was, it was a hard slog, I have to admit, because I was – was living at home. I was 21, 22. I financed the production myself. I was working a job and I was literally paying people to build sets and all mm-hmm. of those sort of things for me. And it and, and money from parents helped as well, of course. Mm. But it was tough, but it was it was so satisfying. And an idea that you have is always better when you have other people who have the same interests to share it with. Because it, it ends up being 300 times better than you ever thought it was. Yeah. And you end up forming these great relationships and you realise how much talent is around. And that's a really satisfying thing to see the other thing about this is that for a lot of puppeteers they are their whole show you know they they are very much similar to what you do they're a one-man band of conceptualize realize and and costume and make and build it together and so it's not too far from what a lot of puppeteers who are solo performers do in making their own work so what did you enjoy the most did you find yourself more like loving the directing or the art side of it the building if you were to go back and do that show what role would you take I would probably, if I think I had my time again, I would probably not confine myself, but I would probably be building those characters, and I would be, be obviously building them a lot better than they were first constructed. But hey, man, they look good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, uh, look, they were great, and they still are around twenty years later. But compared to what I would, it would be interesting to go back. Yeah, and take those characters out of the boxes and look at. I mean, and I do occasionally look at them, and I do think, gee, they're a little bit crude. I mean, they look great on camera, but it would be great to go back and rebuild those, and you know, maybe someday would revisit the series. Who do you look up to in puppetry, and and why? 
there's some interesting people out there and some people that I, I do look up to. I mean, there's an interesting gentleman from um, Lancaster in, uh, in America. Uh, I think it's in Pennsylvania. Don't quote me on that. His name is Robert Brock, and he has pretty much uh, his own little Lancaster marionette theatre, and he's a one-man show and pretty much does exactly what you've just said. Is He's a one-man band, he produces, he writes the stories, he does all of that, and I think that's quite an amazing feat. And I think he's been going for 25 years now, full-time doing that sort of thing. And it's cute. It's a great, it's a theatre. He's got a museum there. And it's interesting. There's a really, a little documentary which is produced by, I think, a local filmmaker there called Man With Puppet, I think, uh, that people should check out. And I think also they're producing a new full-length documentary about his life. So that's something else that's that's interesting. How did you find out about him? I think I just stumbled across it on Vimeo. Unbelievably. And what about it, mate? Is it because it's marionette, which is mm-hmm. not the kind of form that you work in? Yeah, yeah. What was it about it, apart from being cute? What was it about it that you were like, this I is. I just it. am impressed with his. He runs this marionette theatre. Mm. Um, he runs it. He does everything. And I think that comes back to the, the art of, the, of puppetry is yeah. that you can be everything in this one kind of form. That really interests me. Another person, of course, is Ronnie Burkett, who we had the pleasure of having in Australia earlier on in oh, the year. Still part of the Sydney Festival, show. which I absolutely love. Mm. Um, Forget me not. Just the sheer performance that he gives and the beautifully constructed puppets that he he makes um, is just is flooring to me. And you know. We've got the likes of Richard Bagshaw, who you've interviewed. I mean, I remember him on The Muppet Show. He was on an episode of The Muppet Show in the very, very early days doing Shadows. He was. Um, And those... And he and he is inspiring. He's and also course, just super lovely. Yeah, <laughs> as most pub people in the puppetry world are. And, of course, yeah. Jim Henson for, you know, the way that he ran his company and the humility that he gave his team and just the way that he was as a person, which, you know... He was running a corporation, and if you guys watch uh, Muppet Guys Talking, which is a really interesting documentary, it's, you know, some of the main puppeteers just talking about, you know, ethics and and the fun and the camaraderie that they all had. That's inspiring. and For a boss to do that. For a boss. We don't tend to think of our bosses like that, but he was like that. Um, and that's inspiring to me. Yeah. And do you put a little Henson into your life, a little bit of that sort of values into your other parts of it? You know, we all have a survival job, so you work in a totally different world. Do you feel like that part of that ethic that you bring in puppetry and that safe space that you bring in puppetry comes into other parts of your life? I try, and I think I'm a pretty nice person. I think um, you're a pretty nice person. <laughs> I think we we tend not to be very nice I mean, it's a pretty harsh world that we live in. Yeah. If we can just, you know, be nice or say hello to someone or get up off a seat for an elderly person, I mean, we don't, we kind of feel uncomfortable when we do it, but we actually feel good when we've done it. Do you know what I mean? Yep. So, yeah, I try and emulate certain aspects of my of my life from, from Jim Henson's. Um, he was a very thoughtful man and I think if we all took, away aspects of his life and put them into our own, I think it would be a, a nicer place. Oh, that's beautiful. So where do you see yourself going, Chris? What, what do you think's next for Chris Rag? Obviously continue building. 
mean, that will always be part of my life. Whether or not I go and I'd like to maybe do something different work-wise, something maybe, something that's part of me perhaps. I don't know, maybe some theatre work would be interesting. Melbourne Theatre Company, hope you're listening. Hello, this is Chris (laughs) Rack. He's wonderful. Um, In the next couple of years, I'll probably be focusing on my brand, Puppet Tribe. I mean, it's been around for, I mean, a couple of years now. It was done more out of not necessity, but I wanted to maybe push myself a little bit more. I think the retrospective pushed me a little bit and I kind of validated the quality of the work that I do by Bonnie Erickson, who I consider as a, guess as a friend and, and a mentor of mine it's all it takes though isn't it just someone to say what you're doing is kick ass i think it's I really really important because again it's the it's validation from peers which is really vital and you need to believe in yourself as well you know getting your name out there you know some people may not feel comfortable putting a label on something they've built but you know walt disney always used to say that you need to have your name at the top of the billing and then the company second Everyone's going to know your name, but they might not necessarily associate your name with the company. Hmm. So, you know, he did say that to somebody. He said, my name must be on on the top billing. So I think that's important for people to take away, particularly puppet builders who are thoughtful and maybe necessarily quiet people. We kind of don't like to, you know, splash around our talent too much, I don't think. But that's my job to do it for you. That's right. (laughs) I I think it's an important important thing to consider and business cards too you need to get your name out there if you're wanting to succeed and also have validation yeah the rebrand looks great and and so now let's widen the net and let's talk about puppet builders in the community that we have here it's an industry it is an industry mm-hmm. what do you where do you see it going where do you see it's at where it's at what is it what needs to happen I guess a few things. I mean, where it's at at the moment, I, I mean, many of the people listening to the podcast probably would have seen The Dark Crystal, the new series that's on Netflix now. That was That's pretty amazing. And a lot of money was provided for that, but it produced an amazing product. And it's a combination of puppetry and CGI. And I think when all said and done, if you've got a tangible thing looking into the camera, it's lit well, it's physically there, that to me is important than any sort of CGI character. Mm-hmm. Um, and the quality of the production is so amazing that it's sort of took my breath away really. In terms of where we are at the moment, I think that's probably the gold standard for, for puppetry at the moment. I think it's a combination of CGI. We can never really, you never ever take away the fact that having a, a something that's actually physically there, it's to me is, is so important. In general with the, with the industry we need to be together as a group of people i mean i think it's more it's a cottage kind of industry i mean it it is an industry but it's a small industry Mm -hmm. and i think we need to support each other i do think that i guess in the industry some people may look down perhaps on hand puppet style puppets but it's still part of puppetry in general it has its place it shouldn't be looked upon as something lower than a maybe a marionette form and i think we all need to be supportive of each other in the craft that we do damn right and i'm gonna i'm gonna enforce that guys i'm gonna say it right here puppetry in muppet style is just as hard and challenging and wonderful as any other form of muppetry and if you are someone who looks down upon that shush be nice good heavens it's and what about between builders as well i think there's a hierarchy sometimes between builders someone's work may be put down that's not the kind of stuff that we need in the industry no and and i think maybe we should be reaching out we need our mentors and we need to reach out to those people and ask for help. We're not going to get any better if we don't 
if we don't ask for help. Mm. I mean, puppet builders struggle on, you know, hiding seams and, and, you know, that sort of thing. And sometimes it's a very, very simple fix to do that sort of stuff. It just needs someone to push you along and say, hey, have you considered maybe doing it this way? Maybe a different stitch or those sort of things. Something that's really, really simple. And sometimes I think we... We sort of get stuck in our, our own way of doing things is that we need to embrace techniques of what other people have done as well. Because you might actually find that the technique works really, really well for you and the product at the end of the day might be much better. In terms of the Larrikin puppet build that I've been doing, I mean, I don't like machine stitching, but sometimes you have to do it and you can still hide seams and do all of that sort of stuff. It just takes a little bit longer to do in terms of the picking out of the antron fleece and all that sort of stuff but sometimes you have to employ those those sort of techniques to prolong the life of a character for example yeah make him more robust exactly yeah and and in australia specifically you know we are tiny Mm -hmm. what might we offer to to the world of puppetry here in australia look i think we've got some really we've got some really talented people i don't know i I think from a, a puppetry build perspective we don't have anything on television really there's always a perception that if you're going to do maybe a television show that includes puppets that it's always going to be more expensive and in some ways what they say is that that they can go and spend a certain amount of money and get something from overseas that will cost a fraction of what it would cost to make Um, so i think we're kind of we're a little bit stuck at the moment but i think we've got some real We've got potential. I just think we need to kind of harness that in some way. I'm mm. not sure what that is, but we probably just need to really rack our brain and think, you know, what, what is next for us as a group. And so, Chris, what advice do you have for other puppeteers, puppet builders in Australia who are starting out or who have been in the game a long time and just need to hear something? We need to reach out to our fellow builders. A very good person that I know says that you always should follow your tribe, hence the name Puppet Tribe, which which I've coined. Oh, I uh, love that. Yeah, so um, that's what it's all about. But I think it's really important that we all kind of stick together and really try and create a safe space where we can all collaborate together without feeling as though you're on your own. I think it's really, really important to bounce ideas off off each other, to catch up with each other, to sort of, if you've got an issue, for example, that you can maybe are comfortable enough to talk to a fellow builder about the build, a build that you're having or just in general that you feel as though, oh, this isn't working for me because someone might have the answer. And I think it's all about just, it's really about support. We're not a big industry here. We're pretty small. In some ways, that's a really good thing because that enables us to get to know more people or get to know everybody. But yeah, I think it's about, it, I guess it's creating camaraderie and and again, a, a safe space for people to be able to collaborate and talk. Do you think that's what the Muppets was for you and has been for a long time? I think so. I think And this was on Muppet Guys Talking, the documentary, is that people that kind of felt maybe a little bit different, they kind of saw themselves wanting to be part of that group of characters because it enabled them to be who they are. And again, for us puppet builders who are fans of the Muppets, again, it's our safe space. It's our 
it's sort of like our code of silence space where we can go and kind of be ourselves and not feel weird about it or strange. And I think that's really, really important. And if we can kind of create that kind of camaraderie and acceptance in our own kind of puppet fraternity in Australia, I think that's really, really important. Yeah, it's wonderful that we can potentially find our tribe. That's right. That's what it's all about in all walks of life. Absolutely. Well, we're out of time. Chris, thank you so much for talking sock with us today. You can find Chris on Instagram at Chris Rag and at Puppet Tribe. Twitter, you can find him at Christopher Rag. You can also find him on YouTube with Christopher Rag as well. Thanks for listening with us today and make sure you subscribe for more great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I've been Pete Davidson, that puppet guy, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each week we'll post a series of questions related to every interview. Join the conversation on Twitter at TalkingSockCast. You can help us bring puppet power to the podcasting world by hitting subscribe, liking our socials and telling your friends. Like us on Instagram at OneOrangeSockProductions and check out our episode blog at OneOrangeSock.com. You can support our podcast by pledging to us on Patreon. Your support helps fund our audio mastering, interview transcriptions, and much, much more. Find the link in the podcast notes and earn yourself a shout-out on our socials. Head to our website at oneorangetalk.com or talk to us on Twitter to see how you can show your support. Our music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Vanier. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. We'll be back next week with another great episode here at Talking Sock.